Happy Father's Day, everybody. Could we honor all of the fathers that are in our venues and watching online today and you're here in the main service? Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, and if you'll take your Bibles out, we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you need to borrow a Bible, just hold your hand up real high. If you're online, you can download the app. If you're in the other venues, uh, Bibles are available for you there as well. But if you need one in the main room here, keep your hand up. Our ushers are going to make their way through. And when you get your Bible, or if you take your Bible out, if you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and in just a few moments, I'm going to begin to read a text there, and I'm going to invite you to join me when I get there. But I want to set it up this way. Here's what I want you to know. It's 1025 B.C. you got to time stamp what we're about to experience. We're not just going to read words from a page. I want to take you back in history for a moment. So it's 1025 B.C. The battle lines are drawn. There's two hills, one small narrow valley, and the valley is the front line. On either side of the valley, the Philistine army is on one side, the Israelite army is on the other side, and it is a showdown of epic nature. Out of the Philistine ranks comes a mammoth warrior, a towering individual. He's above those that are near him. He stands head to toe, nine feet, three meters in size. He is the acclaimed hero, the champion of the Philistine army. He is the threat to the Israelites. Goliath approaches the battle lines and he taunts the Israelite army a simple cry. This day, I defy the armies of Israel. And that would be the cry that he would use that would intimidate and just instill fear into the very hearts of those warriors. And his cry wasn't a simple cry because it was going to be a battle of epic nature. It would be this army versus this army, but it was going to come down to this. We are not going to put thousands of lives at risk. It's going to mano a mano, man to man, toe to toe. One warrior, one warrior. So Goliath would stand and look at the Israelite army and go, Give me one man to fight. King Saul and the army of Israel is terrified. Not a soldier budged from within the ranks. Nobody was going to move. And for 40 days, the Bible tells us, for 40 days, twice a day, this mammoth warrior would step into that valley and go, give me one man to fight, and let's settle this once and for all. And nobody budged. Enter David. David is the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, David's oldest brothers, three of them, Eliab, Shammah, and Abadah. They had all enlisted into the army. They had all joined King Saul. They were going to fight for their country. And David, while equally ambitious, was too young. His dad wasn't going to let him enlist. He was going to work in the family enterprise. He would be a shepherd. He would work in the business. He wasn't of age to be in the battle. David's father, Jesse, was deeply concerned for the welfare of his three oldest sons. Which father wouldn't be? No one can send their sons to war without wondering how they're doing. So he says, I'm going to send a care package to the three older boys. David, come here. David goes to his father and he said, son, I want you to take this care package to the front lines. Check on your brothers. A dad needs to know how his kids are, doesn't he? Check on your brothers and bring word back so my heart can be at peace. David cares for his flocks, makes sure they're properly tended for, fulfills his work requirement, goes to his father, gets the care package, makes his way to the front line where he would find his brothers. Once he approaches the valley of Elah, David is awestruck 
by what he sees? Can we even picture what it must have been like? Two massive war machines, fully deployed, ready for battle. And David, this young shepherd, approaches this scene. There's a deathly silence that just hangs over the air. And right about the time that David gets there, this mammoth warrior steps down into the valley and he shouts at Israel, Give me a man that I can fight. Everybody knew what he was calling for. It had been 40 days, the same call. David is horrified at the absolute insolence of this Philistine. Who is he that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so he quickly turns and he asks the soldiers, Who is this man? And what will the king give to the one who kills him? Youthful innocence? Inquisition? Just curious. But his voice resonates and someone turns and it's his older brother Eliab. But Eliab's response to David isn't quite what we would expect it to be. Agitated by what he perceives to be the brash ignorance of an immature adolescent, Eliab would rebuke his youngest brother. What are you doing here? You're not a soldier. Why are you on the grounds? And what have you done with those sheep that dad told you to take care of? You're shirking your responsibilities. See, Eliab was feeling the pinch because nobody else was going to step up on this day. And to have his youngest brother in the lines asking questions was embarrassing. Unfazed by Eliab's angry outburst, David would ask the enlisted men, tell me, what will be done for the one who will kill this Philistine? And they quickly respond, well, the king's bounty and the king's daughter in marriage and his father's family will be exempt from taxes. Sweet deal. Great deal. But nobody was going to move. King Saul is told there is someone asking about the king's bounty. Saul sends for David, having not seen him before. He sends for David, and could it be that in this moment the king was filled with hopeful anticipation that maybe, just maybe, a true warrior was emerging within Israel's ranks? No one had risen for 40 days. And the king, ever so hopeful, could it be that I have one who will stand toe-to-toe with Goliath? And just maybe Israel will prevail in this moment. And he sends for young David to come, not knowing who this individual was. David comes into the presence of the king, and when David arrives, all hope quickly fades. This is but a mere boy, a shadow of Paul's stature, and certainly no match for Goliath. And Saul dismisses David's youthful optimism. You've got heart, boy, but you can't fight Goliath. You're not trained in this. He's a seasoned fighting machine. He will pulverize and destroy you. You have no experience to go toe-to-toe with such a skilled warrior. And David's not so easily dissuaded. David looks at his king, and he begins to rehearse his resume. Oh, king, you don't understand. As a shepherd, I often would face adversaries. When the lion or the bear would come in to take one of the sheep, I would quickly get in between the two, and I would destroy the adversary so that I could protect the sheep. And, oh, king, listen, that Philistine is just one more adversary, and the hand of God that enabled me to prevail will enable me to prevail again. Though rather reticent, Saul would eventually concede to David's persistence, conditioned upon David's willingness to suit with the king's armor. Cumbersome, limiting, and awkward. David attempted his best, but he said, I can't do this. I just can't do this. If I fight, I will fight with the armor I know best. It is but my slingshot, and that's all. 
King Saul and his commander-in-chief, who we will find out is Abner, would watch David leave their presence. And they would watch him leave the hill upon which the Israelite army was encamped. And as her eyes would follow his journey down into that valley, and it wasn't that far, David would stop, stoop at a stream, pick up five smooth stones, and slide them into his shepherd's pouch tied around his waist. Certainly, this would be the last that they would see of this boy. Goliath. Goliath was not amused. Enraged that the Israelites would dishonor him by sending a boy to do a man's job. And when David approaches, he sees with his anger and he rails against Israel and he instills fear into the heart of David. He goes, I will tear your body apart and I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David is totally unfaced. He said, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but listen, I come against you in the name of the living God, the God of the armies of Israel. The Bible tells us that Goliath postured himself for war. All of the Philistine camp is watching in full anticipation. Israel is watching with full anticipation. The Philistines are certain that in this moment, it's going to be triumph and victory. It's just a young adult standing on the field. Goliath will destroy him. And all of the Israelites whisper up a prayer because there are no atheists on the battlefield hoping that maybe divine intervention will prevail in this. David lurches towards Goliath, reaching into the pocket. He pulls out one of the smooth stones, sets it into his sling, and does what he knows how to do best. And with the accuracy of a skilled marksman, he sets the stone sailing through the air, and it hits its intended target, sinking deep into the forehead. That mammoth warrior staggers, falls, lifeless, a deafening thud on the ground when he gets there. David runs up to him, pulling the sheath from the sword, so the sword from the sheath. He stands over Goliath and severs the head of this warrior of his enemies. Gasps emerge from the Philistine camp. This is impossible. This is absolutely impossible. And in that moment, all of Israel realized that they were about to prevail and the war cry would go into the air and everyone would rush that battlefield. David would be their new hero and it would be the jubilation of all Israel and he would have a song and a poem to be rehearsed after him. It's a story we know well. In fact, I would venture to say many of you could have stood here today and recited very closely to what I've just shared with you. We love it. We love it in our sports analogies. We love it when we speak of our business analogies. We love it in life when it's the underdog versus the mammoth giant. And so we pull the David and Goliath story out. But you know what we miss? There's a different part of the story that gets overlooked. While the Philistines are running, and that's rather an interesting thought, isn't it? Because weren't they the ones that agreed that mano a mano, hand-to-hand combat, whoever wins, we become subject to them? And as soon as their warrior fell, they ran. They weren't about to be subject to anybody. And in the middle of this, with all of Israel just racing across the battlefield, there's a whole different picture to be seen. There are two lone figures standing at the vantage point within the Israeli military encampment. They've watched this entire episode, and with sheer bewilderment on their face and absolute shock at the outcome, these two stand and look at the scene, and King Saul would turn to Abner, his commander-in-chief, and he goes... Get me that boy. I want to know who he is. Go get me that boy. 
And the Bible says that he will go and bring David back. And this is where I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And if you'll join me in verse 55, here's what we read. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner replied, as surely as you live, majesty, I don't know. And the king said, well, then find out whose son this young man is. And as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul and was with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. This is absolutely remarkable. I don't know if you've ever read this and stopped in these few verses before. But I was reading this, and I was just riveted to the text. It's so full of life. It's so full of drama. Just notice what it says. David has just defeated Goliath. So you know what happens, right? How many of you know what it's like to have adrenaline in your body? You feel that surge, like that surprise, that unexpected moment. Somebody cuts you off. You hit the brakes. You have an, you're just surging through your... David's just had that, that fight-or-flight adrenaline. is coursing through his body. And Abner races up to him, commander-in-chief of the army. And he goes, David, David, the king wants to see you. So we read past this. But I love this. David goes back to the king. He's still holding Goliath's head in his hand. Isn't that awesome? He's standing, hey, king, how can I help you? Like he's waving it. He didn't get a little ribbon. He didn't get a little gold medal, you know. And I, I would imagine that all the Israelites, all the Israelite army, the enlisted men, you know what they were already doing, right? The high fives, all the accolades, the hero salute. It was David, David. They were yelling his name because he was the new hero. And here's David, all this adrenaline in his body, and he's still got the Philistine head. And it's like, hey, king, how can I help you? That's kind of gruesome, isn't it? I was going to bring a watermelon in and just kind of cut out the picture ahead. But, you know, I know you guys are going to go eat when we're done, and I didn't want to do that to you. But here's what struck me. What did the king ask David when he came in? What did he ask him? See, if it was me, if I was king of Israel in this moment, and I just watched this kid destroy my enemy, I probably would have asked any one of a number of questions. I probably would have stopped and just started to say, David, what was going through your mind the moment you were standing before Goliath? David, did you feel fear when you stood up against this mammoth of a man? David, how did you know that you could maintain the accuracy with all that adrenaline in your body when you were going to use your slingshot? How did you know? Those are all the questions that I would have had. But not Saul. What does Saul ask David? David, who's your father? Who's your father? You go, what? There was something in the moment where the king is watching this young man, and there was something in the entire episode that we don't often put together, that when this one who would say, what will be done for the one who destroys the Philistine? That happened when this young man stood in front of him and said, I can't use your armor. It's not what I'm used to. There's something as he watched him walk out into the battlefield, and all he did was pick up five smooth stones, and he goes, one will probably do, but it's always good to have extra. That the king is watching this man, The king wasn't asking, who's your father, because he wanted to know about his DNA. We all do that, don't we? We look at the physical attributes of people, and we compare them. Oh, yeah, he's got his father's eyes. He's got his father's head. He's got the hair, the hairline. Thankfully, I still have some of that. But we look at the physical DNA, but that's not what Saul was doing. Why the question, can I propose today? He was asking about his spiritual DNA. He wanted to know, who's the man that framed your heart of courage? Who is the man that shaped and forged your character? Who's the one 
that poured his life into you so that you could rise to the stature. There's so much embedded in this story. I love reading the background. But often what we do is we drain it of its life. We drain it of its power. And here's the powerful king of Israel before this young man that he said, you cannot do this. And suddenly he's going, who's your father? Who's your father? Because the king recognized there's something that fathers can do for their children that no one else can do. That a father can shape a heart can forge faith, can instill courage, and can release their children to be powerful in life and love and relationships and family. That's what the king was getting at. And as you put all of this story together, David is so quick to respond. I love that there's no air of pride. There's no air of arrogance in his spirit. He quickly goes, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. My dad's name is Jesse and he lives in Bethlehem, that little insignificant place that one day David would have the honor of knowing that his lineage would lead towards Jesus. Isn't this incredible? So why do I raise this with us today? If you're a father in the room, you are not insignificant in your role. If you're planning to be a father, get married first. (laughs) Then you will not be insignificant in your role. If you can't have children, you can still be a significant father. The Bible is powerful in its truth. Legacy fathers influence people. They influence their children. They influence the children around them. They influence the nation. They influence those in the church. That's what Paul did with Timothy, legacy fathers. In your notes, four things. We're going to take it away real quick today. What is it about legacy fathers? What it's all see in David? Legacy fathers... They inspire us to do more than we ever believed is possible. Here's the thing I want you to write down. Legacy fathers inspire a good work ethic. You go, Doug, where'd you find that? Now you're stretching. No, actually not. When you look at David's life, David faithfully fulfilled no matter what task or what assignment was given to him. He never shirked his work responsibilities. Did you notice that even when the entire nation of Israel, their attention was riveted on a little valley just outside of Jerusalem, David continued to fulfill his work assignment. In fact, I put it in your notes, 1 Samuel 17, 14, and 15. It says that David was the youngest of the sons of Jesse. The three oldest followed Saul into war. But David, what does it say here? He went back and forth from Saul to do what? To tend his father's sheep. How many of us would have been tempted to kind of camp out on the hillside somewhere and go, ah, those sheep, they'll wander somewhere. We'll find them later. David could have easily pitched the tent and just sort of sat up on the hill and go, man, I want to watch the battle. I want to see who's going to take this big giant of a man on. And here's David. Where did that work ethic come from? It's from his dad. And so he goes back and forth, and there's time that elapses that we don't understand the full context of the story, but I can draw enough out of it that David had a work ethic that I know could only be instilled from a legacy father who had taught him what it was to be disciplined in his work, to understand his work, and that when you are disciplined with a work ethic, it will open opportunities to you in the future. That is a message we need to hear today. We really do. And even if the task is more demanding and more challenging than he would ever expect, David never, ever compromised. In fact, it would be on the resume that he would share with King Saul, wasn't it? David would tell the king, and the king says, you're no match for Goliath. He said, no, let me tell you about my work. That when I work as a shepherd, there are times when lions and bears, how many of you have to face that every day? Anybody? Oh, man, a couple of lions and bears. Not physical ones, right? We're talking spiritual. Okay, good, just checking. But the lions and bears would come. 
and they would attack the sheep. And I would get in between the two, and I would actually kill the lion and the bear. Now think about this carefully. Bear plus sheep equals safety for me. Bear plus me, bear has a good lunch. Isn't that how we, that's how we do our risk assessment, isn't it? How many of us, if we were David, let's be honest, if we were David, and a bear was coming in, we're counting our sheep, and we go, okay, 141, 2, 3, 4, 145, bear. 145, bear, me. Enjoy your kebab. 144. That's how we would do it. We would probably go, I'm not going to put myself in harm's way. Nobody's going to miss a little sheep, little lamb, no big deal. And David goes, no, my job is to protect the flock. He wasn't over-spiritualizing. He was doing what he was told to do, defend the flock. That was their livelihood. That was their future. Everything was vested in him doing his job. And he did his job, and he said, Saul, don't you understand? They're an adversary. And the job that I did for my dad is the same job I'm going to do for you. My work ethic speaks for the character of the person that I am. And where did the character come from? It came from a legacy father by a man named Jesse. His dad was an incredible man. I pray that all of us would have a father as incredible as David's father, Jesse. I know that we all don't. I know that we all don't. We'll speak to that in a few moments. But don't hold that back against your fathers because we're going to talk about a heavenly father who is an incredible blessing in our lives. I, I was blessed My dad, I don't know, maybe dad's watching, they sometimes watch us online here, but my dad instilled in each of his kids an incredible work ethic. Many of you know the story. I was raised in a rural farming community, southern Alberta. And when my dad took the church, it was just a small church, eight in our family. I think we were 50% of church every time we went to church on Sunday. It was like we were half the church. And so you can understand in a small community like that, they can't afford to compensate what would be required for a man to take care of his family. So what would my dad do? My dad would drive school bus and go out into the farming community and pick up all the neighboring kids and bring them in so they could go to school. But that didn't pay enough because that's just a very limited income. And so then he'd go work at the farm machinery implement shop. And during the day, he would actually assemble farm equipment so that he could augment his income. And in the summer when the bus route was no longer available, he'd go out to the farmer's fields and he would be employed picking stones hard, back-breaking labor, but he never complained, never once. He was always at home at supper time. We never missed a family meal without everybody seated around that table together. And you go, well, then at the end of supper, he had put his feet up and relaxed. No, he didn't. Because of the nature of his work, he'd go to his study and prepare for Sunday or prepare for Bible study or prepare for a board meeting. If that wasn't happening, he was also the Amway salesman. Any way you could make a little bit of money because work ethic means you honor your family and you take care of them. And that's what my dad did. I was blessed with a father who understood that. Today, it's like if I've got to put in 35 hours, it's like, hey, what's going on here? Like I'm being treated like a slave. But we see David having the benefit of a legacy father who inspired her to an incredible work ethic. Maybe that's why the Bible says in your notes, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Working for the Lord, not for human masters, is a great reminder for us as followers of Jesus, isn't it? What else did Saul see in David's life? Number two, legacy fathers inspire. Honor for family. Honor for family. When you see David's spectacular defeat over Goliath, it would have been easy for David to bask in the accolades of his accomplishments And when standing before the king, he could have deflected the king's question. When the king said, you know, whose son are you? He could have immediately said, hey, is there not a warrior's reward? Why are we talking about my dad? What has my dad got to do with this story? I was the guy 
on the field, not my dad, but he doesn't do that. Standing there, when asked, who's your father, he replies, I am the son of your servant Jesse. There's no air of pride. There's, there, actually, there is. Uh, there's an air of pride, but not arrogance in his voice. It's not conceited. It's in a healthy esteem of who his father was. I am the son, and I love that, of your servant, of your servant. David understood what it was to honor family. He didn't have to bask in that moment and pull the king's attention back to what he, everybody knew what he did. But honoring his dad was integral to who he was, and it was something he would do all throughout his life. In fact, in your notes, 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 20, look at David's response to honor his dad. It says, early in the morning, David left the flock in care of a shepherd. This is when he's going to see his brothers. Loaded up, set out as Jesse had directed him that he obeyed his dad. One of the best ways we honor our parents, we honor our family, is through obedience. Even when his oldest brother Eliab would rebuke and chastise David in anger, nowhere do we read in the Scriptures that David would retort, defend, or challenge. He didn't do that. It wasn't part of his character. It wasn't part of his nature. David had a legacy father who had inspired in him, you honor your family. You respect your family. I think it's one of the greatest legacy attributes that dads can give and impart to their children is to teach them how to love and honor family, how to esteem their parents. And sometimes it's rather disconcerting to see how that's just fallen by the wayside. And it's a time for a new generation. And dads, you have this privilege. As fathers, you have this wonderful privilege that you get to be legacy fathers that can inspire your children how to honor their family in the smallest ways, with the smallest of actions, holding a door, Saying thank you, using the kindest of comments is one of the greatest things that dads can teach their kids how to do. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, it says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and you will enjoy a long life on earth. And here is Saul talking to David, and he goes, Who's your father? Who's your father? And he goes, It's Jesse. My dad's name is Jesse. There's something to be a son and a daughter when you just, can just throw your shoulders back and when people ask you, who's your father? And with all honor and integrity, go, my dad's name is, and then just put it right out there. And Saul is listening to the heart of a son who deeply loved and honored his father. Number three, what did Saul see in David? Legacy fathers inspire respect for governing authorities. I think that's sliding a little bit in our society today. It's easy for us to call out, challenge, ridicule, and sometimes even demean our civic leaders and our authorities. But it's interesting to watch what David would do. David, when he stands before King Saul, and Saul would ask him, and this is the first introduction, Saul would ask him, what is it that he thinks he can do for his king and do for his country? You can't fight that giant of a man. Look at David's response in your notes. 1 Samuel 17, verse 32, David would say to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. And here it is, your servant will go and fight him. I'm not on your military payroll, O king. I'm not part of your defense system, your defense plan. I am just a servant, and I'm here to serve any way that I can. And I see someone who is defying the the God of Israel, and I'm willing to step out and do something about it. And you see this incredible respect that he demonstrates towards those that are his governing authorities. And it would be his father that would instill that level of respect for leaders, 
that would ultimately spill over to those that are governing authorities. Even when Saul would request that David would suit up with his armor, what does David do? David knew the armor wouldn't fit. David knew what he was comfortable in. He knew his own skill set. But at the king's insistence, he goes, you need to put the armor on if you're going to go fight the giant. And so David would humbly comply. And he said, okay, dress me in your armor. And as he attempts to walk it out, he would politely excuse himself and ask the king to release him from that commitment. Always, always the model of respect for governing authorities. Even later in his life, and it wouldn't take much, but remember this story carefully. It would be David coming from the battlefield back to Jerusalem when the women and the men would begin to celebrate his greatness. The song and the prose would be written and sung within the land. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Jealousy would be seated into the heart of a king because a new warrior is garnering the love of his nation. That jealousy would spark Saul to attempt to kill David on multiple occasions. And yet after repeated attempts on his life, David refuses to dishonor and disrespect his governing leader. He is his king. On a couple of occasions when David is actually postured in the advantage when he could have easily taken Saul's life, he refused to do it. Even at the request and the urging of his closest friends, David No one will think lesser of you. David, this man hates you. He's tried to kill you on multiple occasions. Or David, take advantage of the situation. God has put him in your hands. Kill this man. Look at your notes and watch David's response. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my, what does he call him? Master, the Lord's anointed. David recognized that when God raises up leaders, whether we love them or we don't, They are still there by God's permission and design. And so David gives the respect that is due his governing authorities. Where does he learn this? It comes from legacy fathers, legacy fathers who inspire us how to live with integrity, even in the face of adversity and even when we disagree with decisions. That's the power that a legacy father has for his children. He can teach them how to respect and how to live a life of such deep respect. Romans 13, verse 1 in your notes, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. We have permissioned ourselves into a state of disrespect towards leaders and authorities. Have they failed us? Some have. Does that permission us to disrespect them? Not at all. And David shows us in his life when Saul asks him, Who's your dad? Who's your dad? that you would walk into my presence and offer your services knowing that you're mismatched against this man. Who's your dad? That you would give me such great respect and offer your life for king and country. That's the power of a legacy father. Number four in your notes, legacy father inspires a heart for God. It is the heart of this man that really brings us to the essence of the story. It's in the moment of battle when the fury of energy and both sides are watching what the outcome is going to look like. It's in that moment that we see the true heart of who David is. For when Goliath taunts him and he sees the anger and he goes, I will tear you apart and I will feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, what is David's response to him? Oh, you've got your sword and your spear and your javelin, but I come against you What does he say? In the name of the Lord Almighty. I love that. 
David knew that his dependence wasn't in a stone from a brook. It wasn't in a leather sling that might be able to send a rock through the air. His strength and his security was one place. It was in his God. And this wasn't some abstract relationship. This was a deeply nurtured relationship and love that he had because when he stepped on that field, he had already seen the giant fallen. He wasn't waiting to see if God was going to deliver. He declared it before he ever let that stone go. God will give me the victory. And he even says, and all those gathered here, who is he speaking to? Not just the Israelites. Your Philistine comrades are going to see that God is going to prevail, prevail here. Friends, where did he get the heart of faith? Where does that come from? Go back to his dad for a moment, his father, Jesse. Jesse is the son of Obed. Obed was the son of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a Moabite. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. God brings together these two individuals and out of this provision and love where God brings the foreigner into his family, a child by the name of Obed is born who would then have a child by the name of Jesse and Jesse would have a child by the name of David. All of that would become the oral tradition of their family and they would say, you know, and I can see Jesse doing that, David, do you know the story? Do you know the story of my father? that the only reason my father was born because God, God brought a Moabite woman and welcomed her into his family. And in that relationship, your grandfather was born. And God has made a way for us. And you know that that story was repeated over and over and over. And little did David know what God would do through his own personal lineage. His heart of faith would become so powerful that God would say in Acts chapter 13, 22, it's in your notes, God would testify concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. Is there power in being a legacy father? Absolutely. Because every father has the capacity to inspire their children to have a heart for God. I love the picture of this story. I wished we could have been there. I do. There's moments, not, not in the battle per se, but wouldn't it have been cool to stand next to King Saul and watch that entire thing as he's watching this young, inexperienced adolescent with a tenacious faith and a total dependence upon God go, don't worry, O king. The Lord is going to provide today. That's the kind of leaders that we need today. That's the kind of fathers that we need that will instill that kind of heart of faith into the heart of their children. And so when Saul is standing there watching in sheer bewilderment of everything that's just transpired, and I'm sure his head was still spinning, I cannot believe what my eyes have just seen. So the first question that he asks is not do you want your reward, not when you, will you marry my daughter, and not when, when do you want the taxes removed from your family's property. His first question was, who's your father? So my question to us today is this. Who's your father? Who's your father? Many of us, many of us could probably stand and say, I had a father like Jesse. I had a wonderful father. Our dads are natural. They're normal. They're human. They make mistakes. But for the most part, they are wonderful men like Jesse. Some of us would not be able to make that claim. And we would cringe at the mention of their name, for they fell or failed, and they didn't fulfill the mandate that God had given them. They weren't legacy fathers. 
So we talk about who's your father. There's an emptiness, the potential for loss in your heart and in your life. But can I remind you today that your heavenly father is still your father? That where we fall short, and I fall short, I'm not perfect. Where I fall short, my heavenly father steps in for my children. And today when we gather on Father's Day, I want to do two things. Dad, men, if you're in the room, you don't have to just have natural children. All the men in the room, every one of us, we have capacity to lead another generation, to pour our lives into young people and young adults and youth and make a difference in their lives. We can be legacy fathers to them, even if we're not their natural fathers. We can make a difference. But I also want to make sure that today when we leave this place, whether we're man or woman, young person, young adult or senior, no matter who we are, that when we hear the name Father, our first connection is not towards loss, but our first connection is towards the incredible generosity of our Heavenly Father who loves us and who is there for us. And He will never leave us, never forsake us, and He will never abandon us. So even if our dads let us down, our Heavenly Father goes, you can bank your life on me because I'll be there for you. Amen? Because He is a good, good Father. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that all of us would have the privilege of having legacy fathers. I pray for the men in the room. Pray for those that are listening to me that are in the other venues that we would be men who would truly aspire to be legacy leaders in our family and in our churches, in our businesses, in our homes, and in our communities. So today, Holy Spirit, would you help us in practical ways? We can teach. We can teach others, show them what it is to have a heart for God, how to respect governing authorities how it is that we can honor our family and that we can live with a good work ethic. These are just practical things that we can do. But would you also help each and every one of us to recognize that, God, you are our Heavenly Father, that you desire to have a relationship with us and through your Son, Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. By simply saying yes to you, Jesus, we have this new relationship with you and you welcome us in to meet your dad. So this day, may we all collectively together be able to say, He is a good, good Father. And because of Him, I will be a legacy Father too. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.